Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with us as we continue our investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. We were pointing out last time that many commentators have noted that the famous reformer Martin Luther developed a canon within the canon. That's to say he selected for special preference certain of the New Testament books and reckoned them to be far superior to others. The book of Romans was Luther's favorite book, along with the book of Galatians and the epistle to the Ephesians. Amazingly, Luther reckoned that the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke contained much less gospel than the books of Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians. It appears that Martin Luther felt that Matthew, Mark, and Luke contained just a record of the deeds and miracles of Jesus and not much else. Now, it's our thesis on this program that such a negative judgment about the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke imply a savage attack on the teaching and gospel of Jesus himself. The gospel, as we define it, is both the message as it fell from the lips of Jesus and the things about Jesus' death and resurrection. Any negative estimate of Jesus' teaching in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, repeated, I may say, three times, so that we would not miss the point, must be detrimental to our understanding of the Christian faith. Jesus was a preacher of the good news of salvation. He came to seek and save the lost, according to Luke 19, verse 10. In Luke 8, verse 12, Jesus remarked that the devil was busy trying to prevent the gospel of the kingdom, as Jesus preached it, from taking root in the heart of the potential convert. This remark of Jesus in Luke 8, verse 12, deserves our closest attention. Jesus there points out that the devil has one object, and is to prevent the seed message of the kingdom of God from taking root as an idea in the heart of the believer. The devil comes and snatches away the message which has been sown in his heart, so that he may not believe it and be saved. And the message in question is none other than the gospel message of the kingdom, as Jesus always preached it. That seems to make an intelligent reception of the gospel of the kingdom an absolute essential for Christian discipleship. What then could Luther possibly have meant when he stated that Matthew, Mark, and Luke contained less gospel than the book of Romans. This appears to us to be a theological tragedy which needs urgent attention. The fact is that that same tendency is apparent in contemporary preaching of the gospel in America. If you have access to a Schofield Bible, we invite you to look at the notes on Revelation 14, verse 6. In that note, we find a definition of the gospel. We learn first that the word gospel means good news and then that it's absolutely essential to man's salvation. And it's called, the note goes on to say, the gospel of the grace of God. Now, here's the definition of the gospel of the grace of God. It's the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world, that he was raised from the dead on account of our justification, and that by him all who believe are justified from all things. It describes this as the gospel of God, Romans 1.1, because it originates in God's love. 
It's also called the Gospel of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.14, because it flows from his sacrifice and because he is the object of faith. The Gospel is also called the Gospel of the Grace of God, Acts 20, verse 24, because it saves those whom the law curses. Again, it's called the Glorious Gospel, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, 1 Timothy 1, verse 11, because it concerns him who is in glory and who is bringing many sons to glory, Hebrews 2, verse 10. It's called also the Gospel of your salvation and of peace, Ephesians 6, verse 15, because Christ makes peace between the believing sinner and God and makes also inward peace possible. Now, certainly nobody could object to the note thus far. But then we come to an extraordinary twist in the argument. The next paragraph states that there's another aspect of the good news, which is called the gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 4.23. Now, this gospel, the Schofield Bible defines, as the good news that God purposes to set up on the earth the kingdom of Christ, the son of David, in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. Now, that definition of the gospel of the kingdom is 100% correct. So, let me summarize the note so far. We learned that the gospel had different names, but it was chiefly the gospel of the grace of God. Now, another aspect of the gospel, as this note puts it, is the gospel about the kingdom of God, Matthew 4.23, and so on. And that was the good news about the Davidic kingdom and the Davidic covenant, the kingdom to be established on the earth. And now the most amazing information. We learn now that this good news about the kingdom was announced by the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah 9, 6-7. It was announced by Christ during his first coming, Matthew 9:35, and will be proclaimed again during the Great Tribulation, Matthew 24:14. Now, you see what that means. What this note has done is to divide the gospel into two halves. There's one form of the gospel called the gospel of the grace of God, having to do with the death of Jesus for our sins. There's another form of the gospel which was preached by Jesus in the past, is not to be preached in the present, but will be preached again in the tribulation. Now, may I suggest to you that that is really a theological complexity of an extraordinary type. It's really a theological disaster. What that note has just done is to remove from us the very gospel of the kingdom which Jesus mandated to be preached throughout this age until his second coming. I hardly need to remind you of Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Jesus told the apostles there to go into the entire world and to preach the very things that he had taught them, to preach the same gospel as he had taught them to the whole world until the end of the age. There is not a hint in Jesus' great commission that his gospel was to be suspended and replaced by a gospel having a different form. In no way did the disciples ever imagine that the gospel would take an entirely different form after Jesus had left. Now, certainly the death and resurrection of Jesus were added to the kingdom message. The result of this was the early creedal statement we find in Acts 8.12. When they believed Philip as he was preaching the gospel about the kingdom of God and the things concerning Jesus Christ, 
they were being baptized, both men and women. And so, you see, the gospel of the kingdom continued without any interruption after the death and resurrection of Jesus. It was just that the death and resurrection of Jesus as new facts were added to the already existing foundation of the gospel which had been provided by Jesus in his kingdom message. Right through the book of Acts, the apostles continued to preach exactly the same message as Jesus. It's called the gospel of the kingdom of God. You'll find it mentioned in Acts 1.6, in Acts 1.3 indeed, as being the subject of Jesus' 40-day discussion with his disciples. You'll find it in Acts 19, verse 8, in Acts 20, verse 25, where indeed Paul equates his preaching of the kingdom with the gospel of the grace of God in Acts 20, verse 24. Those are the same thing, two ways of describing the same reality, namely the gospel of the kingdom of God as Jesus had preached it and continued to preach it through the book of Acts using the apostles as his accredited agents. So what we find here is a beautiful simplicity in regard to the gospel. There's one gospel, and all preaching in the New Testament means heralding the kingdom of God. Now, that idea goes back to the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, and even prior to that with the ministry of John the Baptist. The foundation of the Christian gospel must be traced to the beginning chapters of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If we lose the foundation, we lose the sense of the whole gospel. Unfortunately, popular preaching and much modern evangelism avoids the obvious definition of the gospel as found at the beginning of the ministry of John and Jesus. But that's to lose the foundation of the Christian gospel. We're building then on sand. Unless we root ourselves in the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God as demonstrated by John and Jesus. Now, the announcement of the kingdom of God is clearly a Jewish affair. But we Gentiles are invited to take part in that Jewish affair. There's not one gospel for the Jews and one for the Gentiles. That would make a nonsense of the whole unity of the New Testament. There's one gospel of the kingdom of God. It's the gospel that Jesus announced. When Jesus declared that the kingdom of God was at hand, he was not playing verbal games with his audience. The kingdom of God was a perfectly well-recognized phrase in Jesus' Jewish environment. The announcement of the kingdom of God could mean only one thing. The kingdom of God was the phrase which sounded alarm bells in Israel. It reminded people of Joel, the second chapter, where we read that the prophet was to blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, because the day of the Lord is coming. It is near at hand. Now that's exactly the language of John and Jesus the kingdom of God is at hand. They were heralding that great fact of the future. They were sounding alarm bells in Israel and putting everybody on the alert in order that they could prepare with utmost urgency for the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, although 2,000 years have elapsed, the message remains the same. Since the kingdom of God has not yet come, the announcement of its future arrival must go out across the world. Now, it's important to understand that the whole New Testament is commentary on this central message of Jesus. Everything from the beginning to the end of our Bible is really commentary on God's intention to restore kingship in Jerusalem, to restore peace to the earth. The earth is going to be full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. 
The kingdom plan, God's kingdom project, his grand design stretches from one end of the Bible to the other. Jesus is the last and final preacher of the kingdom of God, God's last word to the world, his warning to prepare for the great day of the Lord. Everything in the New Testament stretches forward to that great day. Our Bibles, in fact, end with the greatest description possible of the future coming of the kingdom. The whole of the book of Revelation, which is a revelation given by Jesus Christ through John, is a picture of the coming of the great day of the Lord and the kingdom of God. And so the book of Revelation provides us with the great culminating event to which the whole of the Bible had looked forward, namely the reestablishment of paradise on this earth in the presence of Jesus Christ returned as Messiah and King to exercise authority on the throne of David as promised by the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. It seems to us to be a considerable tragedy that the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom element in the gospel, has been removed from popular preaching. I received this letter from a leading evangelist who says that I believe that the gospel of the kingdom is different from the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel of the grace of God, he says, has nothing to do with the kingdom per se, but is a message of repentance which makes us members of God's family. But that's to tear the gospel in half. The kingdom message and the gospel of the grace of God should not be separated, and Acts 20, verses 24 and 25, demonstrate that beyond all reasonable doubt. We invite you to call us or email us for your free copy of our book on the kingdom of God, and join us again as we continue to investigate Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.